welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23rd, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction, but we were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover 2 Resources in memory of Sam. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Greg McNeil from Cover 2 Resources. On May 14th, I received an email from a Montgomery County, Maryland resident that struck a chord with me. In the email, Elaine, to protect her privacy, I won't use her last name, shared the story of Alan her brother, who had struggled with addiction, relapse, and recovery for much of his life. During one period, he celebrated 20 years of sobriety. While his unexpected loss, less than a month ago, came as a shock to her, it turns out Alan had overdosed many times before, and his history of close calls was well known to some of his friends. Elaine wanted to share her brother's story to stop others from learning the true story of their loved ones, when it's too late. My brother was a a complicated person, and um, he had a larger-than-life personality. He was very, very smart. He had a tremendous innate gift. Uh, He could have been a stand-up comedian. He um, embraced many aspects of life, the uh, the good and and the underbelly as well. we had a tough childhood. We, we was fraught with poverty. There, there was abuse, uh, not not drug abuse, but um, physical abuse. And uh, we we came out of that uh, at two brothers, so we were very close as siblings, very close in age. There were three of us in, in the in the in primary family. Um, my my parents went on to have uh, additional marriages and additional uh, children. And the three of us were very close. Um, Alan could be extremely charming. He could also be extraordinarily reckless and and dangerous. And he got into a lot of trouble. Right around the 80s, we were were all in the bar business. And uh, Alan got caught up, like a lot of us did, um, with the cocaine craze that swept the nation. Um, And he lost a lot of jobs and a lot of opportunities because he became extremely addicted to cocaine. In the late 80s, I organized the first intervention for my brother. And it, it wasn't so successful, but he ultimately did end up going to rehab. He didn't stay clean initially. It took about another year or so before he finally embraced recovery. And my brother, got clean and sober in 1990. It was closer to 24 years he remained sober, clean and sober, very active in the 12-step program of recovery. He had a tremendous support group of long, long-term long friendships that dated back to childhood, people who had gotten into recovery either before him, with him, after him, who stayed in recovery, a really strong, supportive network of friends. Uh, he, he built a business. He bought a house. 
he established himself financially, and he eventually met someone he wanted to marry, and he was in a good financial position to start a family at that point. He was a little later, you know, a little later in life. He was in his late 30s at that time, and got married, and by all accounts, he, he looked, on paper, he looked really good. He had a business, he had bought some real estate, and he had a couple of kids um, and stayed clean uh, for 23, 24 years. So how did he take a turn? How did he end up relapsing? Well, this is a story I hear over and over and over again, and my brother is part of that sort of a national, I guess, epidemic occurring in this country. He had an operation, and he was prescribed the oxycodone. And even though cocaine had initially been his drug of choice, which brought him into recovery in the first place in the late 80s, even though that had been his drug of choice, and it's a completely different type of drug, the oxycodone cotton oxycodone uh, seemed to reawaken the giant in him, if so to speak. And my brother was off to the races with prescription pills and opiate, an opiate addiction uh, almost, almost immediately, it seems, almost immediately. So this was in 2013, right? Right, 2013. Mm-hmm. So as I was saying, uh, he was prescribed oxy the oxycodone, and he got caught up in the craziness of uh, prescription drug uh, dependency, doctor shopping, um, then eventually, I don't know all the details because I don't really know anybody, any dealers, and and, I'm completely out of that lifestyle. I've been out of that lifestyle for almost 40 years myself. But apparently, you can buy prescription pills on the secondary market, and he was able to do that. But it's considered illicit, and they're very expensive. So my brother started to get into financial trouble at that point. He had been really successful. He enjoyed a great income. He had you know, rental properties that he was getting income. He really was in a great financial, solid financial place before he went back out on, on prescription drugs. And the prescription drug addiction really uh, hurt him financially. It was very, very expensive. Um, he did admit that he was spending anywhere from sixty to seventy, upwards of eighty thousand dollars a year, uh, procuring these uh, these pills. And eventually, he went he went to heroin. He went to street drugs. And he went to heroin. Went back to heroin. And in your account, you said that's when it got ugly. What did you mean by that? Oh, it's it's it, it, he went all over the edge. By over the edge, I mean he had series of accidents. He put other motorists at risk by by being on the road. He uh, when he was high, anything could come out of his mouth. He got arrested numerous times. He would show up high at family events. My sister's baby shower. He was high at another sister's wedding. He was high at, at Christmas. He was high at uh, picnics, at uh, family gatherings. He would have outbursts and altercations with people. Anything could come out of his mouth. He his behavior was very dangerous. And and then in the last year maybe a year and a half, 
he started overdosing. Apparently, there's an epidemic with fentanyl-laced heroin and cocaine, fentanyl uh, being a, a, um, a manufactured opioid. Um, and it's, da- it's really dangerous. And if the fentanyl in the heroin was unpredictable, and my brother started having numerous instances where he OD'd and had to be administered the antidote to heroin overdose, Narcan. I don't know how many times that happened, but we do have on record at least five, and more. most likely there are more instances of, of that happening. And that was in a year and a half time period? Starting from about, and my brother was very good at keeping all of this from everyone some people knew some pieces of his story. Others knew other pieces of his story. The entire story and the entire picture of my brother's life and his using only really came to light after his death. And I want to speak to that. Let's talk just a little bit about that. What did you learn after Alan passed that you hadn't known before that was so enlightening for you? What I didn't know was how that my brother was not walking a a razor thin line between life and death with his using. He'd already gone over the edge. He was continuing to flirt with death as he continued to use, knowing that it could ultimately lead to an overdose. He'd been very lucky that he'd been found in in a bathroom, in in a supermarket. He'd been found in his truck. He was found in the gym and he was able to receive the antidote. And he had to have known that if he continued to use that one day, he wouldn't be so lucky. And that's what's that. That's the one takeaway that I got with this, that, that, that was very, very difficult for me to fully understand, not ever having done heroin. I don't really know the pull to, to that kind of high. Um, the other thing is that there were a number of people in my brother's life who enabled him, for lack of a better word, kept his secrets, um, kept it's it secret, the severity of his addiction and the severity of his using. I don't think that did him ultimately any any justice. I think in a case like this, I would have appreciated knowing a lot more about what was going on with my brother than I did at the time at, when he was alive. Do you have some specific examples of these uh, secrets that, that really, had they been put on the table, that, that would have been so helpful for everyone and perhaps it would have helped them get back into recovery? Yes, I've I've turned this over in my head many times. Uh, If we had known the severity of my brother's addiction and the amount of times that he'd overdosed, what would we have done differently? What could we have done differently? And what would he have accepted? And those are all big ifs. And of course, we have the benefit of hindsight, which is always 2020. Uh, we, We made decisions about my brother based on what we knew, but we didn't know the full picture. And there were those who did know the severity of his addiction. Uh, My brother had gotten out of rehab for the second time uh, at the end of the summer in 2019. And he was temporarily staying in my father's house. My father was uh, ill with cancer. He'd had a series of strokes. And my brother was staying in his house. 
and the conditions and terms under which he was permitted to stay there were that he was clean, that he remained clean, that he that he continued to participate in an outpatient, that he attend meetings, and that he re, he remained free of drug use. Uh, and he did anything but he most likely was using the entire time he was living there. That was a six, seven month period of time that he was staying in my father's house um, under the guise that he was clean and he was working on getting his life together. We have reason to believe that it's entirely possible that he was using the entire time during that period of time. My brother relapsed three times of which we are a hundred percent sure he relapsed three times had to be administered the antidote narcan had subsequent hospitalization and there were a number of people who knew about this didn't share it with the family i again it, with the benefit of hindsight, we know what the ultimate result was. My brother did eventually die of one of those overdoses. He wasn't so lucky. There wasn't anyone around to administer the antidote, and my brother did ultimately die. With the benefit of hindsight, what would we have done? What could we have done? What would we have done additionally, and would he have accepted the additional help? These are all unknowns, and these are all questions that will never be answered. Elaine, I. Uh... I really have to applaud your, uh, your courage. This is so fresh. It was just two and a half weeks ago that you lost your brother. April 26th. He died. It's been very, it's, it's been really difficult. Yeah. Yes. So my heart went out to you on Thursday when you wrote this, May 14th. My brother, Alan, had 23 years of clean time, cocaine addiction from the 80s, when he was prescribed oxycodone after a shoulder surgery in 2013. He was never the same, ultimately. His addiction to pills led him to street drugs, namely heroin. On April 26, 2020, my brother was found unresponsive. He died of a drug overdose, which included heroin and fentanyl. We believe it was the fentanyl-laced heroin that killed him, as he had overdosed several times before and was administered the antidote, Narcan. In order for his life and death not to be in vain, I would like to get more involved in spreading the word about the dangers of this epidemic in the United States. Please know I truly understand the loss of your son. My condolences. Feel free to contact me. Sincerely, Elaine. Um, Again, that was just such a, a beautiful gesture, a courageous gesture on your part. And so it, um, I'm delighted to give you this platform, Elaine, to, to share what you've learned so that others can hopefully avoid going down this path. So what advice would you have for other people out there? Well, that's such a loaded question. It's... Um I, I I think the one takeaway that I have from this is when I look back 
you know, I, I've spent a lot of time after my brother's death talking to everyone and anyone who reached out to me who was willing to give me information about what my brother's life was like. And that's why I'm able to piece this this together. I have all the missing puzzle pieces now, and I have a very clear picture of my brother's life. I, The one walk away is if you have someone in your life that you love and you know they're struggling with addiction, they're going to cover and lie. My brother was very good at this. And it is really incumbent upon the non-users to be openly communicating amongst each other in an out, in a very open and transparent way, especially in an instance where the addiction is so severe, the, the addict is overdosing. I, I, I would so have so much would have appreciated knowing the severity. It was not portrayed to me that way. And um, that's the advice I would give. Don't let the addict continue to manipulate you. That's easier said than done. My brother was very good at it. He manipulated everyone. And be open and transparent and honest. As hard as as that might be, um, these kinds of secrets potentially have a deadly consequence. So I think the culture of recovery oftentimes is in direct contrast with that. You've got a conflict there because you've got this anonymous culture, right? The anonymity piece is 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 not applicable when it comes to the addict's behavior when the addict is in the active throes of addiction and engaging in extremely destructive behavior. The anonymity piece of that is not is not part of that. The the open discussion and transparency about what's really going on in that individual's life takes precedent over protecting the privacy of the individual's actions. The the anonymity in AA or NA, Narcotics Anonymous, would be at the personal level when someone is struggling to stay clean, remain clean, or is actually working an active program of recovery. And my, my brother was not doing that. My brother was actively using. What else would you like to share with others about Alan and your experiences as his uh, big sister trying to help him through this? By the time my brother died, my relationship with him had been challenged. Uh, He and I had had a wonderful bond. I really did love my brother. I tried to help him over the, over the decades. I was the, the first person to help help him in the 80s when he had his cocaine addiction. I loved him very much, but I also had been really challenged by him and his behaviors. And that's something I'm left with that I'm struggling with. Some of my own um, regrets and guilt, feeling of guilt. He had lived with me um, for for a number of weeks prior to his death, so I had him here in my house. I I wrestle with not not seeing the signs. I wrestle with not, you know, wrestle with the foolish thought that maybe there was something more I could have done to help my brother and save him. Um, that's one of those things that. When we lose somebody who's so close to us, 
we all struggle with that. The coulda, woulda, maybe shoulda. The more that you get to know this disease, you're swept up in all of that and, and you have a role in trying to support them the best that you can. And oftentimes, though, we're ill-prepared for that role. We just don't know what that is. And in some cases, like my case, and it's until it's too late. And so the struggle is to find a way to, to communicate that, share that education with others so maybe when they reach that, that point, they'll be able to make a difference in their loved ones' lives. Greg, this has been very helpful to me. I was I was so grateful that I could write an honest email to you, and then you responded almost immediately. Uh, I can't thank you enough for that. And <clears throat> I don't I don't really know enough about what my role is going to be in terms of attempting to ha- to make something good come out of this horrible situation and uh, help other people. I don't know what my long-term role is. I just know that I feel for, for families who've gone through this and I feel for, for those who are going to go through this because it's, it is really a complicated death and there's a lot of loose ends. And oftentimes there, there are, are broken relationships and hard feelings and, and a lot of regrets a lot of regrets, a lot of people that loved my brother, his, his wife, his children, his family. We have a lot of unanswered questions and regrets that are going to never be answered. If I can help someone else not be left with all of that and someone can help me work through my feelings, then, then something good will come out of this. My brother was very good at manipulating uh, he manipulated me. I knew he was addicted to prescription drugs. And for five years, my brother manipulated me into lending him money. I mean, that's the number one, that's a number one to no-no with an addict, lending them money, helping them out, giving them money. And I did it for, I did it for five years because my brother was very good at playing on my sympathies. And that's part of the disease. That is part of the disease, being a master manipulator. And it looks so obvious for those that are outside looking in. But when, when you're in that, that is so compelling, that argument and, and that justification in terms of why you needed to loan them that money for the rent or for the food or for the getting the car, whatever it happened to be. You were all in on solving that problem, not realizing that that problem was not the problem that was presented at all. That was simply to feed what his brain needed. The drugs. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I enabled him uh, there. Uh, I, uh, his wife uh, enabled him. I, he was very good at playing on her emotions. Um, and he had a, a number of friends who were in recovery, who really re- were in his corner and worked so hard to help him. But there, you know, few 
that that didn't share as openly as they should have about the the extent to which my brother was overdosing, uh, the near-death experiences. But my brother would compel people to keep his secrets and he was very good at that. I don't, I don't blame or fault anyone. It's just a cautionary tale that these kinds of secrets ultimately don't help the addict. And, and especially when we're talking about someone that's in the death grip, the death grip. My brother was beyond active using. He was in the death spiral of his addiction with all of these overdose instances. And those instances should have been brought to light. What role has COVID played in the loss of your brother? Oh, it's only made it, it it's just so much more difficult. Um, Grief grief support groups are either not meeting or they're meeting via Zoom. I know from my brother, he was, you know, he went to meetings. He went and had a lot of friends in, in the fellowship. And the meetings eventually stopped, and then they they went to uh, Zoom, and he was not very computer savvy, so uh, essentially he didn't even have that support anymore. Um, he enjoyed the camaraderie and 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 going out and having coffee or dinner after these meetings. That was all gone, all of that. He felt very isolated and alone. The gyms were closed. All the things that he liked to do that were part of his normal pattern and daily routine, those were, those were taken away. And uh, I, I had a conversation with him a, a couple of weeks before he died about how this period of isolation, the stay-at-home orders, the gyms and, and restaurants all being closed and the, and the meetings all being um, shut down, that this highlights everyone's feelings of, of loneliness, anxiety, depression. Again, I didn't know that the severity of my brother's addiction. Uh, I actually thought my brother was clean when he was staying with me, and he was not. And he was sheltering in place with you for four weeks, right? Yeah, yeah, he did. He, well, he didn't shelter in place. He was staying here. He was out a lot. Hmm. Um, but the things that he liked to do, going to the gym and then meetings and meeting with friends and uh, all of that was, was gone for him. And uh, so COVID, the shutdowns definitely, I feel, brought this all to a head. It was the perfect storm. It was his inability to really string together any time in recovery and then the heightened isolation of the, the lockdowns and the lack of social interaction that was really important to him. I think it just brought everything to a head for him. And uh, he didn't see a way out. He didn't see a way. He, he lost hope. He lost hope. He knew, he knew how addicted he was. He wasn't able to share that with me openly. He shared it with others. But he lost hope that he wasn't going to win the battle. Well, once again, Elaine, I, uh, I want to offer you my deepest... Uh, condolences, and and also uh, my greatest admiration for your courage to come out so soon and uh, and speak about your brother and speak about his struggles with substance use disorder and your struggles as a family. When you look back on Alan's life, what do you want people to remember? 
underneath it all, my brother had a huge, enormous heart of gold, generosity, and forgiveness. That was the core of my brother. I remember him as a baby. I remember him as a child. He was very affectionate. He always shared. He was generous. That's what I would like people to remember about him. And people do. People do remember that. People do remember that about my brother. According to a study published in JAMA Psychology, compared with the general population, adults who survive an opioid overdose are 24 times more likely to die during the year after the incident. If you know of someone who has overdosed, make it your business to tell their family. You may end up saving a life. Once again, I want to thank Elaine for sharing her story with us. My name is Greg McNeil. I'm the founder of Cover 2 Resources. For the latest on community events and our podcast series, follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Cover 2 Resources. That's Cover and the number 2 in Resources. If you would like to learn more about this or any other programs featured on our podcast series, please contact team at cover2.org. As always, Thank you for listening to this Cover 2 PPT podcast. That's people, places, and things making a difference in the opioid epidemic. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. 